when we were thinking uh, the other day of, of themes for talks that we might offer to the retreat at this point. Many of us encouraged Bonnie to give the talk she gave last night on faith, because one of the wonderful things about teaching with her, and I'm sorry she's not here tonight to hear me say this, but I will repeat it to her when I see her, is her love and devotion for the Buddha and these teachings. And we just wanted that to shine through um, in her talk on faith, and I think it did at the end. She just lights up when she talks about the Buddha and his teachings with a great sense of devotion and reverence. And I share that with her. She's just a little more exuberant about it than I am, (laughs) which is Bonnie's way. But I totally share it. And the more I study and practice, the more I'm just so deeply impressed by his wisdom, his clarity, and his compassion. And if you think of, you know, what he's offered us in his 45 years of teaching since his, after his awakening, uh, in English, the teachings are compiled in 26 volumes, of which this, the middle-length discourses, is just one. So 26 volumes, approximately, of, of teachings. Um, incredible breadth and depth of covering the, the pointers to the deepest uh, states of, of meditation and realization, but also addressing all aspects of our life, from relationships to lay life, society, families, etc. So just an incredible um, wealth of offering of the Dhamma that, that he has given us. And what's also amazing is these 26 volumes, uh, you may know, um, in the time of the Buddha and for 500 years after were passed on orally. It was an oral tradition. They didn't, they had writing, but writing because it was just on um, bark cloth or something that didn't last very long, they didn't have good ways of keeping, wasn't considered to be very reliable. And actually the oral tradition was a more reliable way of recording these teachings. So for 500 years, they were carried on through an oral tradition of memorization and repetition. And one of the themes or um, uh, signatures of these teachings you'll find out of, because of those conditions, is there's a lot of lists. And the good thing about lists is if you know there's five of something you can only remember four, that there's one that you need to ask someone else. You know, what was that fifth one after all? I just can't quite uh, remember it. But when you think of the teachings as just lists, that sounds kind of dry, right? Just things to memorize, kind of a dogma. And it, it, they're not that at all, and, and lists doesn't do it justice, because I really see them more as maps or guides to the workings of the mind and the path to freedom, and that these suttas, these teachings, are practice instructions. They're not things to just be read memorized, believed, but actually invitations to and pointers to our own direct experience and how to understand it. And certainly the one that I spoke about in my first night talk and going to talk about tonight, the Satipatthana Sutta, is directly that. It's, it's the practice, it's the sutta that most directly maps onto what we teach here in our mindfulness or vipassana practice. So Satipatthana is usually translated as the four frames of reference or foundations of mindfulness, and it's this uh, teaching, Majjhima Nikaya number 10, of describing how we do this practice through these foundations of mindfulness. 
And as I said in my first talk, I um, started with the beginning of that sutta where it gives us the kind of the framework for our practice, how we should approach practice with this sense of ardency and um, clarity, wise comprehension, clear comprehension, and then begins instructing us to be mindful of the breath. Just this simple breath meditation that we've talked about so often and using the breath to calm the body and the mind and bring a steadiness of attention. This is the beginning of our practice that we do here and the beginning of that sutta. It then goes on, there are actually 14 different body contemplations in the sutta, just in that first foundation. And many of them we teach, but some of them we don't. Um, Don't teach on retreats like this. We actually teach in other retreats, things like the 32 parts of the body, where you actually investigate the body and its nature, its blood and, and muscle and bone and phlegm and pus, in this very direct way, death contemplations, where we're invited to recognize that this body is subject to aging, illness, and death, and will also have that fate. All of these practices, though, point us to the same understanding, which is repeated in what's called the refrain, or the insight section, after every foundation, where we're instructed to be aware of the previous foundation, and its conditioned nature, the fact that it is the um, product of certain processes and conditions coming together, and that its very nature is to arise and pass away, and that there's nothing solid or permanent to be found in this experience, for the example of the first foundation of of the body. And as I said, this is um, represented in all of the other foundations. The second foundation is Vedana, or feeling tone. This quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral associated with every sense arising at the six sense doors. We've talked about that. Third foundation, mindfulness of mind states, chitta. Um, and this is where we're instructed to be aware, is the mind full of aversion, or is there no aversion? Is there desire present or no desire present? And what's interesting in that foundation, as we're instructed to be aware of the contents of the mind, it's very non-judgmental. It's just, are these qualities present or not present? Really applying this equanimous mindfulness to that experience. And then the fourth foundation, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight, is this incredibly complex map of practice in and of itself includes everything we might need to know to practice. The entire practice is pointed to and included in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is called Dhamma Nupasana, mindfulness of Dhammas. And I know Andrea spoke a little bit about this term the other night, but I'll just go over it. Usually this is translated as mindfulness of mind objects, but I don't think that's a very good translation. Um, and I'll go into what it, uh, how to understand it in a little bit. As we go through these foundations, as I said, beginning with the, um, the body, they get more and more subtle. So the body is, in some ways, the grossest, as in the most solid, you know, earth element, the body in its, in its uh, reality. And then to Vedana, this 
sort of somewhat subtle nuance of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, then to the contents of the mind itself, mind states, which as we've seen, I'm sure, in our practice, how fleeting and insubstantial they can be, how changeable, more and more subtle. And there's a direct connection between the third foundation, this awareness of citta, mind states, and the fourth foundation. And in the third foundation, we're just asked to be aware of the contents of the mind, the state of the mind. Are these certain experiences, the kalesas, greed, aversion, delusion, present or not present? Is the mind concentrated or distracted? Just a, a clear knowing of what's happening in the mind. In the fourth foundation, we take some of the same experiences, but we're asked to look a little more deeply. It's a little more complex. And it's appointed to over and over again how all of these experiences are conditioned. Everything is conditioned. And once we start to understand the conditioned nature of these experiences, we can begin to understand the conditions that support wholesome experience or more well-being or skillful experiences and start to understand the conditions that tend to lead to suffering experiences, painful experiences, unskillful experiences. So we start to learn how to do that for ourselves by paying attention to our own direct experience. So not, again, something to believe or some ideals, but actually studying this in our own experience. And from that, can begin to understand how we can have more freedom, less suffering through this direct inquiry. I just picked up from the Spirit Rock Library, collection of uh, Dhamma books mainly, um, and it, I was attracted to this one um, by Ajahn Munindo, and it's called Unexpected Freedom. It's a great little book. I haven't read it completely yet, but I picked it up because Ajahn Menindo used to be our local monk. When Guy and I lived in England, we started a meditation community where we would have regular classes and day-longs. It was a non-residential. We were living there, but the things we put on were non-residential um, day-longs and classes. And we always had good connections with the local monastic community. And for time, Ajahn Menindo was our local monk. So he was the person who would do a regular tour through the southwest of England, and he would come uh, teach at our center, or we would go to his teachings. And he was a monk from, he was from New Zealand, but he had studied and practiced in Thailand, uh, some with Ajahn Chah, and always appreciated his uh, teachings. He was always very warm and friendly and wise. And so it was interesting just to hear a little bit more about his background and his beginning of practice. He, like many of the people who ended up practicing in Asia, was just on a kind of hippie trail, you know, doing some, he said, batik painting in, in Indonesia and, you know, resorts in Thailand and Malaysia, just traveling on the, on the kind of traveler scene, but somehow ended up ordaining in a monastery in Thailand without really much of an idea of, of what he was doing and committing to stay for the Vasa what they call their rains retreat, which as we've said is what we're having here, in case you haven't noticed, <laughs> a rains retreat. Um, so there he was practicing in these very difficult conditions as a, as a young Western man, shaved head, robes, uh, one meal a day, strange culture, you know, uh, different food. 
Um, and he said his first instruction from Ajahn Tate, who was the, the abbot at this monastery, he says, your task in practice is to realize the difference between the heart and the activity of the heart. It's that simple. That was his practice instruction. And what Ajahn Tate is pointing to, this word heart, is citta, which we, is, a, is a word in Pali that means actually both heart and mind. So when he says the difference between the heart, the activity of the heart, we could say the mind and the activity of the mind. And it's really a pointing to that they have in the Thai tradition and that Bonnie quoted this morning from Ajahn Sumedho, this awareness that's knowing experience, differentiating between the capacity to know and the contents, the processes, which this awareness is knowing. And the freedom that's found when we rest more in the knowing rather than all of the changing activity. So that was his practice instruction. And he said he took that and practiced in very difficult situations. I said, you know, a hot climate, lots of, you know, spoke about waking up in the middle of the night, covered in biting fire, uh, um, stinging ants, covering his whole body. And he said the walls were pulsing with ants as they just went through his his small hut. He said after a time he looked like death. He was just so thin. But finally he had an experience of wonderful clarity. You know, it just happened out of these very trying conditions. Mind was bright and clear. And he went and shared it with Ajahn Tate who said, great, just keep exercising mindfulness in the moment and learn to come back sooner to this clear way of seeing. It's that simple. Just make the effort to remember. So again, there was his simple instruction. Just do that, you know. There's that clarity. Just come back to that very clearly. But he was in, on fire for practice, and he'd had this great experience. His teacher was affirming it. Guess what happened next? Followed by horrendously unpleasant mind states, indescribably terrible states of self-doubt. You ever had that experience, this great opening, awakening, whatever, and then this is what happened. We often say the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is to have a good experience. <laughs> but he said due, due to the kindness of his teacher, he was able to survive, but it was about seven years before he was able to more fully appreciate what the teacher had told him. If you ever think of complaining about the conditions here and how long and slow this retreat might be. It's raining a bit too much or there's too many beans at lunch. I recommend reading some of these tales of people's practice in, in Thailand. I, I, one of my, the books I really liked was Ajahn Suchito's story of his pilgrimage through India called um, Rude Awakenings, where he traveled through northern India on pilgrimage to the holy sites on foot living off arms. So a good wake-up call if you're ever apt to be in a complaining mood of, about conditions. But Ajahn Menindo goes on to say that Ajahn Chah has a great image for this development that happens in meditation. He says, this is Ajahn Chah, these moments of mindfulness and understanding are like drips of water coming out of the tap. In the beginning, it's drip, 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 with big gaps between the drips. Little by little, with consistent effort, these moments become drip, 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 and then drip, 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 and then they become a stream. And he's really pointing to 
this continuity of mindfulness that we've been so emphasizing, as we put these moments together, they actually become alive and the clarity and clear seeing becomes more possible. And this is what the fourth foundation is pointing to, the clarity and wisdom that can come when we really begin to turn to and understand our experience through the lens of the Dhamma, with this sense of clear seeing. Now, we don't usually teach the fourth foundation as something to do. We've gone through the other three fairly clearly. First foundation, practicing with the body and the different postures, the different ways of being with body experience. Second foundation, Vedana, Carol gave a talk on, we've given in instructions. Third foundation, mind states, we talk about a lot. We don't do the fourth foundation as a practice instruction because it's so complex. But it is the natural development of refining your awareness and becoming steeped in this Dhamma field that we've been creating here through all of the different talks and instructions and your own own reflections. And what happens is we start to understand the how and even the why of experiences happen in meditation. And when I say why, it's not the questioning of, you know, why did this happen to me? It's not about content, it's about process. We start to see these processes and how they are lawful. There, are, there is a lawful unfolding, and the more we understand that, the more we can actually engage with those processes skillfully. So the fourth foundation is what we do with the mindfulness once it's developed and becomes samasati, wise mindfulness. But it is a complicated set of teachings. If it seems too complicated as I'm talking about it or afterwards, please just let it go. Let it just wash over you and take in the big picture, which I'll point to at the end. But it is just, uh, again, an amazing insight into how the Buddha understand, understood practice and how practice develops. And also, perhaps you'll see, it's what you're already doing when you're bringing a Dhamma understanding to what your experience is. And it's certainly what we try to do in the practice meetings. As you report your experiences, often what we'll reflect back is how to hold that with a Dhamma view, how to understand your experience in Dharma terms. And then you'll see, ah, this is how I'm practicing, or is, you know, what happens when I relate with skillfulness or wisdom to my experience. So it's the foundation of mindfulness of dharmas. And as I said, Andrea uh, talked a little bit about this in her talk on the aggregates the other night, because she used this section in the section on the aggregates in this part of the sutta for the basis of her talk. And it's usually translated as mind objects, but that doesn't make much sense to me because Dhamma, uh, as we know, has broad meanings. Um, it can mean the teachings of the Buddha, called the Dhamma. It also means the way things are, seeing the truth of things, some kind of pointing to reality. But Dhammas are also things, like this is a Dhamma. This, though, they didn't have this in the time of the Buddha, but it doesn't matter. It's still a Dhamma. It's a thing, an object. So it's really 
pointing our experience to um, the way things are, the truth of things. And I think Andrea also used this quote, which I like from Taranea, where she says this foundation is about seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So it's basically bringing a Dhamma understanding to our experience moment after moment, the experience of the Dhamma of the body, of the mind, of the heart, of the inner and the outer. So it's weaving Dhamma understanding through all this. And it's kind of the biggest hits of the Buddha. We're asked to contemplate Dhammas in relationship to the five hindrances, our old friends, the five aggregates, as I said, Andrea spoke about, the six sense bases, including the five physical ones, including the mind, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths. So again, as I said, this is a great map of of these really important uh, teachings of the Buddha. And for each of these lists, there's a slightly different practice that we're invited to do with them. And you can see how it develops out of the earlier foundations. The difference here is what we do with experience, how we relate to the experiences that we're having. And it's also an invitation to the skillful use of thought. We've said again and again that we don't want to be in a relationship with thought where, like thought is the enemy, a good meditation is where we have no thoughts. Yes, in general, we don't want to give energy to thought, be involved in a lot of thinking, but we have these big brains for a reason, and one of them is we can understand our experience in this very direct and and powerful way if we use thought wisely if we develop this way of relating in meditation that we call reflectional contemplation. It's, a, it's an invitation, it's Dhamma Vichaya, uh, investigation of the Dhamma um, through our direct experience. So it's not monkey mind, it's not kind of puzzling out, it's not uh, some kind of discursive thinking, but a very present moment, direct experience of insight into our experience. And in mindfulness, you know, we've said again and again, the important thing is this present moment, right? What other moment is there? Being in the moment, knowing what's happening. This is the foundation of our practice. But I see in this fourth foundation, there's actually an invitation into um, mindfulness, of what I call the three mind moments or the three times. First one, obviously, is the present moment, the now, where we recognize what's happening. But we take a a wider look at it, where there's a little bit reflection into what was happening that led me to this current experience. What was I paying attention to? What was the state of the mind? What was the experience of the body? Again, not a big discursive story about that, but just this glancing back to previous moments to recognize that. And so we see, oh, this led to this experience. From that clear seeing, we make a wise choice that leads to the next moment. Now, of course, the next moment becomes this moment, but then we track, okay, I brought this awareness in, saw these conditions were present, made a choice. What happened? Did it lead to more clear seeing or insight or freedom or peace or calm or whatever? Or did I get more caught or confused or lost or or troubled? So we start to track a little 
This is this bigger picture that the fourth foundation constantly invites us into. And sometimes I call this post-mortem mindfulness. You know, again, we really want to be in the present moment, but if you were literally just in the present moment with no reference to the past, I think we might have to wheel you out of here because, you know, we learn from our past experiences that, that what, you know, conditions us. We need to understand them. So reflecting wisely, again, this is not spinning out and it's not the second arrow of how did I get here and it's not my fault and who's to blame and this is a problem, but really just wise reflection on the conditions that brought this moment into being, and how we can learn from that, how we can respond skillfully and wisely. So I'll go through these and in, 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 in more detail about how this might happen. It starts with, and again, there's a wisdom in even the unfolding with our old friends, the five hindrances. We want to bring this kind of perspective to the five hindrances. In the third foundation, mindfulness of mind, even though it's the frame is more the kalesas, the torments of mind, you could say it's the same process as the hindrances. We're asked to be aware, are these present or not present? Is, is sloth and torpor present or not present? Doubt, present or not present? Here, we're actually asked to understand why these states arise and pass. Again, not in the content so much, but in the process of them. Why, you know, if I pay attention in certain ways, this tends to get developed. If I renounce or release, then there's a, a greater spaciousness. So the first of the hindrances is sensual desire, and the framing in this text is that the meditator understands there is sensual desire present or no sensual desire present. And that in and of itself is an interesting way of looking at it because we're so used to, you know, fit, f being aware if we can that desire, attachment, etc., is present. We very rarely remember to notice when it's not present or when it has been present and it diminishes or leaves. That's actually an important moment in practice. So that's the third foundation of mindfulness. Excuse me. Aware of the presence or absence of desire, aversion, delusion, etc., concentration or distraction. But in the fourth foundation, it's the hindrances, and we're asked to be aware is sensual desire present or not present? So, same formulation, but then the meditator understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. Got that? Andrea gave a whole talk the other day about the four, four wise efforts, and this is that same framing where we're asked to see how these processes come about, and if it's something that leads to more suffering, how the future non-arising, and all these double negatives, it's like how to, to lead the mind, how to guide the attention, so we don't so much invite this particular hindrance to arise. We can start to understand that. And my example often is something like, you know, if you want to be on a diet or eat healthily, you don't go to the all-you-can-eat 
buffet or have the endless pasta bowl at the Olive Garden. It's just not conducive to renunciation. You know the conditions that are hard for you to um, restrain yourself. So you avoid that. That's the skillful um, use of this principle. And just to repeat them simply, the four ways efforts, I like to put them as four A's just so we can remember them. We avoid or abandon the ones that are difficult or troubling, and we arouse or advance, develop the ones that are wholesome or positive for us. So basically learning how to negotiate around the ones that are difficult so that we don't um, increase them. And the ones that are beautiful and wholesome, we really need to recognize those. But in this case, we're working with the um, hindrances, which are, which are challenging for us, bring suffering. So recognizing, in this case, the first hindrance of sensual desire, recognizing that desire is present in whatever form, that's practicing the third foundation of mindfulness. Great practice recognizing that desire is a hindrance and that we can begin to understand the conditions that led for led to its arising and what helps it to diminish that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness that's really applying wisdom to our direct experience and perhaps you've seen the power of this when you one of the hindrances have been present and we can, you know, usually they're around for a while and we're kind of tussling with them Then we know it's uncomfortable and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. Oh, right, I've been really wanting this. I've just been stewing in these thoughts, but we realize, ah, oh, wanting, desire, attachment. Really helpful. Even more helpful to actually recognize and note if that works for you, oh, this is a hindrance. For me, it's like a light bulb goes on. Oh, that's why it's so sticky. That's why it's so hard to see through. That's why it's so challenging. It's a hindrance. You know, what's a definition of a hindrance? Make It hinders clear seeing. So it just helps us more clearly understand what's been going on and see, you know, why I've been so disturbed or trapped or caught or frustrated by this experience. It's a hindrance. And so instead of kind of trying to throw all that aside, you know, pretend it didn't exist and slam the attention back to the breath as kind of a, a, you know, hiding place, it's like, let's open up. What was going on here? What was this whole storm I was caught in? and bring wise understanding to it. This is how we actually learn in practice. This is how we actually train ourselves. So we can see this process over and over again. uh, Myself, uh, a little while ago, I got some news from my family back in Australia where, you know, I go once a year or so, but most of the time I'm not there in direct contact, and heard some news that was disturbing of someone doing something, a distant... in law doing something that was really painful to uh, one of my sisters. And of course I got, you know, why is he doing that? He shouldn't have done that. He should have done that. They should have said this. And if I was there and then uh, I actually was meditating because I'd gotten this news early in the morning and I was sitting with it. And every time those thoughts came up, I would feel that whole storm of, you know, the who's mentioned righteous indignation, you know, and if I was there, I would, and, they should and he shouldn't. 
But as calmness gradually uh, managed to manifest a little bit, I realized most of what I was thinking had no basis in reality. I had a little snippet of information of a, a short description of an action. I had no idea of motive or reasons or what the heart feeling was in any of the people concerned, and that my reactivity was just my projections onto the experience. And I would feel the suffering of it. You know, I'd get tight and constricted, my teeth would clench, my heart would beat faster, and then I would notice that, calm down, turn the attention to the bigger picture of not knowing, and everything would relax a little, release. And then, but they should, you know, and you just see the whole, have you know that? (laughs) And it just like, up periscope and the whole thing comes uh, into into being again. And I, but I saw how it was just created out of my ideas of what was happening and that I really couldn't know what was happening until I was closer to the people involved. I like this quote from Marcus Aurelius. He was a Roman philosopher and emperor when we had such things, where he said, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. Wise words in this time of alternate facts. But we need to be willing to challenge perceptions when we see it's causing suffering, because they are just that, perspectives, perceptions, It's so hard for us to know the actual truth, especially in this realm of feelings and emotions. So we look at the hindrances in this way of stepping back and seeing what's actually going on here. So the hindrance of sleepiness. I often think there are three uh, types of sleepiness. We need to know which one it is. Is it what I call garden variety sleepiness, which is just physical, mental mental or physical tiredness from lack of sleep, stress, or whatever. The body's depleted, the mind's depleted. Best antidote is rest to that. But then there's a second kind we've called sinking mind, which I don't think we've talked about much in here, which is an imbalance of concentration and energy once we've gotten a little calm, but not enough interest in the, in the experience, not enough energy. The mind can just fall off the experience fall off the moment into either dullness or fog or into this kind of shock of of feeling like we'd been uh, trucking along quite mindful, but someone just turned out the lights and we lost track of what was happening. This is sinking mind. It needs a little bit different kind of um, antidote. And then there's sleepiness, sloth and torpor as a defense, where it's really a closing down because we don't want to look at what's happening. And we mightn't even be aware of what it is. It might be the next thought we were going to have, but we saw it looming and we just said, no, I'm checking out. So we need to understand the conditions, the kind of sleepiness we're having. And again, not to you know make a big story about this, but again, if we understand it, we can know the context within which is happening and apply appropriate antidotes. and the hindrance of doubt. This is often the most challenging hindrance because when we're in it, we don't recognize it. We think we're telling ourselves the truth or seeing clearly or being very, um, you know, 
applying introspection to experience, really uh, looking at it. But it's like delusion. It's a fog that just colors everything that we might see. I love it when our dear friend Greg Schaff says about doubt, how we often think we belong to the I'm not very good at this club. And I think that's a club that we often think that we belong in. But it's actually just doubt at work. And if we can see it as doubt again um, and know that it's a hindrance, the light bulb goes on. Oh, that's why I'm spinning out. That's why I'm pointing the finger here and there. That's why I'm looking for someone to blame for this moment of confusion. And then we can know that what we need is the faith that Bonnie talked about last night or more clarity or mindfulness or maybe, you know, to have a practice meeting with someone and just check out what's happening. So to name that this experience is doubt, third foundation of mindfulness, that it's a hindrance, fourth foundation. The Buddha's gesture on the night of his awakening, touching the earth mudra, where Mara, the personification of delusion, of confusion, tried to dissuade him from his awakening with his last uh, ammunition, which was doubt. Who are you to think you can sit here and be this awake? I know you, Mara. I see you, Mara. We all need our own uh, moments of that. The next of the uh, list we're invited into is the aggregates. And Andrea talked about that the other night in the form of the fourth foundation, so I won't go into that. Um, But just to emphasize again, the aggregates themselves are not the problem. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. The Buddha had them, still had them after his awakening. It's when we cling and identify with them. That's the problem. So that's what we're asked to do, is to look at that process of uh, how we identify and that they're just conditioned arisings like everything else. And then the next list is the six sense spaces. And this is a really, a, it's another way of looking at our human experience, a different lens than the five aggregates. And it's how mindfulness practice. What's happening at these six sense doors? Can we be mindful of it? And as Joseph will often say, Joseph Goldstein, don't make it so complicated. There's only ever six things happening at the most. Just keep it really simple. And our invitation here is the practitioner understands. So it goes through each one of the six sense doors. I'll start with the first one. Understands the eye, understands forms, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. So this word fetter, uh, in reading uh, commentaries on the foundation, there's many different interpretations as to what might be pointed here, but I think the simplest one is just where we get caught. And what's important to understand is it's not the eye that's a problem. It's not the object that's a problem. It's the fetter that arises dependent on both. It's the lusting after or the aversion or the delusion That's the problem. And just staying with the idol as a place to practice, it's such an important place to bring awareness to. And we've talked about that in some of the instructions and talks because we're such a visual culture. You know, a lot because 
of reading and writing and how we take so much information in through the visual door. We've lost some of our other senses that in other animals are much more awake. But our culture puts a huge amount of emphasis on looks, right? Physical looks, human looks, you know, decor, whole magazines, you know, devoted to God knows what, different aspects of houses and rooms and uh, all kinds of things. And we get overwhelmed in it. We're so used to fixing solidity out there through the sense door and that the world is out there in some solid way. Sharon Salzberg will talk about, you know, it's like our eyes are on the old cartoons where the eyes were on springs, you know, boing, 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 when we see something that we like. You can feel that, right? When you, even when you go into the kitchen and there's a meal you like or a, a beautiful sight. And instead of just a relaxed appreciation, there's this going out through the eyes. And we see how we do that again and again. Uh, a, a little while ago, um, we had a teacher meeting in in England, in Europe, and we decided to take advantage of being there and went on, uh, traveled through Italy a little bit, took a week or so. And Italy is beautiful. You know, the landscape is beautiful. Culture is beautiful. Friendly people, delicious food. But after a while, it's like, not another Gothic cathedral I have to go through or another Renaissance masterpiece. You know, you're just rushing through the Uffizi Museum because it's just overwhelming of just so much seeing, you know. And now there's whole books like the, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It's like that's what's important is see these things. As Joseph said, is there ever an end to seeing? If you're entranced by seeing, it's endless. A thousand things. And now, you know, that's a whole industry. A thousand foods to eat before you die. A thousand, now I'm waiting for now mindfulness is in. A thousand retreats to go on before you die. That'll be... You've, Check one off here now with the Spirit Rock. I'm always amazed when a new movie comes out and people line up to see it, like, you know, in very difficult conditions, you know, overnight even. I'm like, it's not going to change. <laughs> if you see it a week from an opening or a month or even a year, the movie and your experience will be the same. But there's this urgency to see it. And, you know, the whole thing about... Self selfies and photos, you know, it's this image obsession. We were recently at the um, Grand Canyon. We were visiting some friends down there. We'd actually been uh, teaching a retreat in that area and went to the Grand Canyon. And I remember being there, and it's it's amazing, right? So it is a spectacle to see. It's just vast, immense, but you can't really see it. It's it's too big. But someone came along behind us, and I could hear this voice talking, 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 like, who are they talking to? And I looked around, and it was a man with a video camera. So his view of the Grand Canyon was through his, you know, little video screen, narrating what he was seeing to this, you know, future non-existent audience. It's like, <laughs> what are you actually experiencing here? And while we were there... There were stories, because there are newsletters, you know, that you get when you go into these parks, about people dying because they were taking selfies. Oh, look at me on the edge <laughs> of the Grand Canyon. And there was recently some guy who knocked over a, a, a priceless 19th century statue in a museum, you know, taking a selfie. So it made me think of this uh, poem by Wendell Berry called The Vacation. 
just like my experience I saw at the Grand Canyon. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly towards the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever, the rivers, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat, behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation, even as he was having it, so that after he had it, he would still have it. (laughs) It would be there with a flick of a switch, there it would be, but he would not be in it. He would never be in it because he wasn't there for it. So, wise relationship to these sense doors. So we're actually in the experience and knowing what's happening and how to relate wisely to them. So we talk about guarding the sense doors, not in any sense of, you know, bad or wrong to be seeing or experiencing, feeling, touching, but wise relationship to these experiences so that we can actually use them to bring understanding and not be lost in them, not be um, at the mercy of them as we so often are. And so using seeing, using wise relationship to these other sense doors. The next of the practices we're invited into is the seven factors of enlightenment. Again, this central teaching on the development of meditation, where there are these, uh, and this is a very positive list that we're asked to develop, and Guy gave a whole talk on it uh, the other night, these three arousing factors that bring us energy, three calming factors, and mindfulness as the balancing one. And again, it gives us just a different framework on these important teachings. So the first one it talks about is mindfulness. We're asked to know, is mindfulness present or not present? Now, there's a bit of a, I don't know if it's quite a koan here, but knowing if mindfulness is present, it's what we've been asking you to do. You know, can you know the mental factor of mindfulness is, is clear, is being developed? You have awareness of what you're doing. But... If you know that mindfulness is not present, are you mindful? I think you are. But what's happened is you've come back into mindfulness. And people often ask, why do I get lost? You know, I'm, I'm really committed. I want to be mindful, but it goes. We could talk about that a lot, and there's many reasons. It's a conditioned habit. I think the more interesting question is, how does mindfulness come back? What, what leads to, as we're asked to in this, what supports the arising of unarisen mindfulness and how arisen mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development? That's a more interesting question. And as one teacher says, um, enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident prone. And it's really that the more moments of mindfulness we have makes mindfulness more prone to arise. So it's a whole, again, continuity or uh, um, the, the uh, continuity of practice really is what supports the arising of unarisen mindfulness. Really to, to get interested in this, what are the conditions that support 
unarisen mindfulness arising. I mean, the big one that we have here is the this. You know, you walk into the meditation hall, or you in meditation, you open your eyes. Everything here reminds us to be mindful. Other yogis remind us to be mindful. It's harder when we're out in the world, but as we pay attention, this is what we start to notice. And then the last of the list, interestingly, is the four noble truths. As practices, again, not as lists to be believed. You know, if you memorize your card-carrying Buddhist, you've got the four noble truths in your pocket, you can pull them out and recite them. But actually using them as practice. Oh, this is suffering. This experience right now, this is the first noble truth. This knee pain or this heartache, or this loss. Oh, this is suffering. And this is the origin of suffering, this refusal to accept how things are, wishing it were different, grasping, aversion, delusion, seeing that as practice. And then this is the cessation of suffering, the possibility of this mind, in this moment, knowing peace or ease. Ah, this is release. I was caught in this turmoil of wanting, of craving. And that's ended. And there's peace or calm or mindfulness or equanimity or whatever it is. That's a taste of freedom, of the third noble truth. And then the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, and one of us will probably talk on this in the, the coming days, but it said that being on retreat fulfills each of the Eightfold Path factors. So just to know that your practice here is doing that. So we're practicing the whole of the Eightfold Path. But what's powerful about this is actually engaging in with these truths in our practice not just to hear them in a Dhamma talk or read them in a book, but, oh, this is suffering. All right. What the Buddha talked about, a truth, because it, it's, it's inherent in existence, in this conditioned mind and body, cause of suffering, end of suffering. We can see that. In, we invite you over and over again to see that in your direct experience. And so the intent of this whole section of the of the of the this whole piece of the foundations, the fourth foundation, is to integrate the Buddha's teachings into our moment-to-moment experience. That as we practice, we're developing samasati, wise mindfulness, that has this way of relating, of bringing wisdom, investigation, and understanding to what's happening. So mindfulness, vipassana, is not about just bare attention just knowing what's happening. That's just the beginning. What we're really invited into is this engaged presence, this engaged relationship with experience where we're understanding why things are happening. Again, not, you know, don't overthink this, but as we get steeped in in these teachings, in these practices, this is just what happens, especially when we're caught when we're suffering, or when there's deep moments of peace or freedom, we can understand. 
why this is happening and how we let go of the unwholesome, of the unskillful, how we do that as practice, how we use antidotes, how we balance and, and come to um, why seeing about that, and how we know, cultivate, celebrate, and, and develop the wholesome, the skillful, the clear seeing. And so, as I said, you maybe, hopefully, are doing this more than you might have thought. This is the heart of our practice in and of itself, in in the moment, it's actually simple. When I give it all in one piece, it can seem complicated, but its essence is discovering freedom, ease here and now, releasing the mind from the ways it gets caught and discovering peace and freedom. And as I said, the four foundations are a progression, first, second, third, fourth. The fourth foundation, also a progression, starts with the hindrances. As we learn to work skillfully with those and it lessens these stickiness of the mind, the, 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 the difficulties, the way we get caught, then we start to um, see more clearly the truth of the experience and we can turn that to either see through the lens of the, f- the five aggregates and not get caught or identified with those the see through the lens of the six sense doors and know how to relate wisely. Again, not get caught. Once we can see clearly in that way, the mind can more easily open to and develop the wholesome factors, the seven founda- the seven factors of awakening. So there's a progression here, even though it's not necessarily linear, but in an overarching way, there is this patterning that's happening. As the mind stabilizes and balances, the factors of awakening become more accessible, more in balance, then wisdom can arise where we see the truth of things, the the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering, way to the end of suffering. So, as I said at the beginning, it's an amazing map of practice that the Buddha could point us to this in such a succinct way, but describing what could be lifetimes of development in its complexity. And again, you know, he did this out of his own direct experience. He didn't have Wikipedia as a reference or, you know, an Excel spreadsheet to track all the different ways he was mapping these things together. But it's an amazingly coherent and powerful um, description of how to come to awakening. And he ends the sutta with these famous words about the power of this practice. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, which is full awakening, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return third stage of awakening, let alone seven years. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, and there are ellipses where he would repeat six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, these two fruits could be available. Let alone one year, bhikkhus. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, 
for half a month, one of two fruits would be available, let alone half a month, bhikkhus. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it was with reference to this that it was said, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, disappearance of pain and grief, attainment of the true way, the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Buddha's words. Seven days. For those of you who are here for a month, I calculate seven days left. Those of you for two months, even longer. We often think we should put out a sign at the front, enlightenment guaranteed, seven days, as long as mindful every moment in the way described in the sutta. I don't think we'd have to give the money away anytime soon. We could give a money-back guarantee. But, joking aside, I just find it inspiring and reassuring that I can read these words from a text, from a discourse given to people just like us 2,600 years ago and know that I'm the beneficiary of a lineage of people, men and women, who have kept these practices and teachings going for these hundred thousands of years and that we today can hear benefit and practice from these teachings and attain freedom and happiness that the Buddha spoke about in this very life. And that we all have the capacity to more freedom, more happiness, more peace and compassion. So let's just let the words settle into silence. for your attention. So as usual, there's half an hour for mindful walking or moving or tea drinking before coming back for the last sit. And you never know when the moment might be right. <laughs> 